Welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's good to have you with us. We're having a great morning here thus far. Isn't that right? Good morning thus far? And we assume you're having a good morning too. It's good to have you join us. We're in a series called Reality Check. And so far in the series, we've looked at titles like Christianity. There's a lot of misinformation in our culture, in our world, about what Christianity really is. What's the reality of Christianity? How about community? There's a whole lot of fake news going on about community. What makes up true community according to God's perspective? How about purpose? What should we be living for? Tons of misinformation in our world about that. A few weeks ago, we talked about our purpose that our designer built in us to fulfill. We talked about rest and marriage and money. And last week, Carlos helped us think about grief. Here, Quakertown, they were doing money, which we did the week before. Um, And this morning, we're going to come to kind of the granddaddy of all reality checks. The most important, the most pivotal, and the most significant of all of our reality checks. This morning, we're going to talk about God. So if there is a God, what's he like? And I need to tell you right out of the chute, we've got a little bit of a problem. And the problem is extrapolation. So here's how it works. Every one of us in this room has parents. No one in this room has a perfect parent or a perfect set of parents. None of you in this room are perfect parents, and we haven't had perfect parents. Then we read the Bible, and it says that God is a father, and it's easy for us to take those characteristics that we saw in our father or in our mother, and we kind of extrapolate that to God and say, oh, God must be like that. Yeah, but sometimes the misconceptions, sometimes the frailties kind of get extrapolated too. Some of you in this room had parents um, that seemed to just wait for you to step out of line, right? So they'd scold you or smack you or worse, right? Well, if you were in a situation like that, it's easy to take that and extrapolate it and begin to think, oh, okay, God has a big fly swatter, and he's just waiting for me to step out of bounds and whack. Or maybe some of you had parents that were uh, disconnected, aloof, absent. And we extrapolate and say, God's father. So I guess he's far away, doesn't really care, not too concerned about me at all. Or maybe it wasn't a parent. Um, maybe you had a coach or two growing up. Many of you played sports. And some of you had crotchety, mean coaches, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. I had a couple of those. And I, I, we had one coach, he loved to grab your face mask on you and kind of twist your head back and forth. And you kind of extrapolate and say, oh, okay, so God wants to grab my head and twist me around if I'm stepping out of bounds. So God is this mean, cantankerous God waiting for me to step out of bounds so he can scold me, swat me or something. But that's not the picture that we get from the Bible. So we need to clear up our misconceptions Get rid of the misinformation, evaporate the fake news, and talk about God as he's presented in the Bible. And my guess is, regardless of how long you've been in church, regardless of how many sermons or Sunday school lessons or whatever you've heard, you're going to be surprised at some things about this God as he's presented in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, turn all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, 
And we only have time to look at two passages. We're going to do one from the beginning and one from the end. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in between that we could look at, but we kind of had to make this manageable into the the time frame. So I'm going to read a few verses from the beginning, and let's try to answer the question, so what is God like? How's he presented? Well, I'm going to begin reading in Genesis 1, verse 27, and I won't finish the chapter, but I'll get pretty close. You can follow along. Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that is fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that is the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now that obviously is telling us about creation. The creation of human beings in God's image. So here's what I want to ask you and how we want to start. So what's God like? Maybe we can answer the question by looking at the initial instructions that God gives. Now, contrary to what some of you are thinking, God's first instruction was not, don't sin. You didn't read that. Did you read that? That's not in there. How about this one? Read the Bible a lot. That's not in there either. Don't have any fun. Don't goof off. Don't color outside the lines. God doesn't say any. Isn't that interesting? None of the initial instructions have anything to do with the burden that we often live under. That's because of that extrapolation problem. We often take those role models, those authority figures over us. We often take their negative characteristics. We then extrapolate them onto God. But in the beginning of the book, God's initial instructions had nothing to do with any of that. Here is the first instruction. Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. Not don't sin, not read the Bible, say your prayers, don't get out of line, believe all the right stuff, none of that. Be fruitful and increase in number. Now, just, you know, to help you think through this, if God wants human beings to increase and be fruitful, what activity would have to be involved in that endeavor? Uh, I'm I'm just saying, um, well, it kind of goes like this. Don't be nervous. It kind of goes like this. (laughs) There's a mommy and a daddy, and they're hanging out together, saying their prayers together, reading the Bible, doing devotions together, and their love is just growing. And before you know it, there's a baby people kind of running around. Wow! The activity that's involved in being fruitful and increasing in number is sex. That's the first command. But I want to call your attention to the last part of the statement. Be fruitful, multiply, increase, fill the earth. I did a little research this week. The earth is basically 
24,000 miles in circumference. Today, there's roughly 7 billion people living on the earth. Now, what was that activity that was involved in being fruitful? A whole lot of that went on, right? Um, now, a whole lot of it may not be going on today, but a lot of that went on in order to fill the earth and get 7 billion people, and that was the first instruction God gave. And amazingly, God made sex a pleasurable, desirable experience. That's the, now, what kind of a God would do that? God could have invented the means of multiplication to not involve a pleasurable, desirable experience like sex. You know, you could have been walking down the street and you get like a bump on the side of you and it's getting a little heavy and eventually it kind of drops off and it has feet and then it just separates and then it too. God could have done that. He didn't do that. God said the first instruction is fill the earth 24,000 miles in circumference, fill it with people that bear my image and sex is the activity to get to that destination. That's what God's like. Who would have thought? Man. Uh, then we have another command that shows up. We touched on it a little bit. And here's the second. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, most of our time when we read those two verses is spent on the second part. But I want to emphasize the first part. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. In fact, in the original language, it's a double command. Eat, eat. It's kind of like God is an Italian mother. <laughs> You're too thin. You need to eat. You're not filled. You need to eat, right? And she's not happy until you waddle away from the table, right? You need to eat. That's what God's doing. He could have made one flavor food. God could have, from the very beginning, said, all you guys are getting forever and ever is manna. Yeah, some little stuff show up on the ground. Now, the Israelites survived on that for 40 years, but that was a little parenthesis in the giant story of an amazing smorgasbord of food. God places human beings into a garden, fills it with food, and says, eat the second command, pig out. Pig, eat as much as you can. It's all yours. Now, the second part there, the kind of the prohibition, we'll talk about that a little later, but I want you to see the first two commands. Have sex a lot and pig out all the time. What kind of a God would do that? Our God. That's how he's presented in the Bible. How in the world do we wind up with this rule-keeping, you know, this um, God looking down on us, waiting for us to get out of line so he can swat. Where does that come from? It certainly doesn't come from Genesis chapter 1. Have sex, pig out. We get one more. Here's the third command that shows up. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves along the ground. What's the third command in a nutshell? Do stuff. Do stuff, important stuff. Do what you want to do. Now, you got to remember, God's the creator, right? So he's kind of up here, and then he creates human beings in his image here, and then he says, now you guys rule over all this stuff and do stuff, but notice, we do that as stewards, not as owners. God doesn't say, now I want you to run the universe. God says, no, 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 I'll 
stay in my position, but I'm giving you authority under me to do stuff in the world. Now think about all the stuff that human beings have done. Architecture, art, music, training elephants, right? <laughs> Painting, building homes, making gardens, vineyards, orchards. Uh, human beings have done incredible things and they have used the gifts and abilities and wisdom and accumulated intelligence that we've gotten over the centuries to do all of that really neat stuff. So God says, do stuff. And he gave us the aptitude and the availability to do all kinds of stuff. Now that doesn't mean we can all do the same kind of stuff. A lot of stuff I can't do. We won't get into that list. Uh, there are some things you can't do too, but God's given us gifts and aptitudes and time and said, do stuff, go do stuff. Now, what kind of a God would have created human beings and the three initial instructions are have sex, pig out, do stuff? That's the God of the Bible. What in the world happened? How did we go from that God presented in the Bible to the God in most people's imagination that's this cantankerous, um, overbearing, rule, and um, note-taking God, the worst of all parents, the worst of all coaches? How in the world did we get there from here? Amazing, isn't it? So what's God like? Here's what he's like. He creates human beings in his image. And he says, I want you to live a pleasurable life. I want you to eat all kinds of stuff. And I want you to do stuff. You know, talk about eating stuff. I had uh, lunch with somebody this week that uh, just came back from Italy. He was in Italy for two weeks. He said, a problem in Italy. What's the problem? I ate way too much. So I've got a diet now that I'm back. So he's on this really strict diet. The diet includes, now listen, some of you may be on The diet includes drinking half your weight in water ounces every day. He has to drink 124 ounces of water every day. During our lunch, he went to the men's room three times. <laughs> he said, I've learned i got to drink it all before lunch or I can't sleep tonight. That, now, I don't know about you, have you ever dieted? Here's what I was thinking about. I didn't say this to him. Here's what I'm thinking. Whenever I diet, I always include a cheat day. You have a cheat day? And I live for cheat day, right? <laughs> cheat day, you get up like at 4.30. <laughs> and, and it starts with bagels and bacon, right? And from there, you know, you wind up, you go, to, you go to McDonald's for breakfast, you go to Jesse's, you go to Pizza Pub, you go to Hawkeye's, and all that's before 11, right? And then you go to the gym to make room for everything else you got to eat in the afternoon. And you, you just eat. What does God say? Every day is a cheat day. You're in a, cheat every day. Eat stuff and make stuff and have sex. That's our God. Some of you wish we could just end right here, right? <laughs> the pastor told me just eat stuff, have sex, and do stuff. That's what I'm doing. Well, we're not done. We're not done. Well, then there's a primary problem. And the problem happens pretty quickly, and it's kind of related to the second half 
of the second command. And the primary problem is about don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. And, you know, sometimes in theological circles, that's called the fall. But that's a little bit of a misnomer. Adam and Eve didn't fall, they jumped, right? It wasn't like, oh my goodness, I didn't know what, they did it with their eyes open. God said, don't, they did. That's the problem. It was a jump, a calculated decision. It was not something that they passively just kind of fell into. It doesn't work that way. Well, it kind of makes sense though, right? Let me explain it this way. Suppose that right here, is God's position. I don't mean to take his spot. You know what I mean. Here's God's position. And God, since he's the creator and he's omnipotent and he's omniscient and he made all this stuff, right, he kind of knows how life should work, right? So God says to the human beings, now, live like this. Live like right here in the garden, right, doing all the things, pleasure, eating a lot, doing stuff. You do it. Do it within the parameters that I've given. Notice, any movement that they make away from that position, the train is now off the tracks. Trains can be really powerful and annoying if you're waiting to get across the intersection. Uh, trains are, trains were, work really, really well if they're running on the tracks. When the, chain, when the train jumps the track and now is running in the field or down the road, now we've got major problems. That's what happens when God says, here are the tracks, guys and they choose to live off the tracks. Well, that then raises a question. Why did God put that tree in the garden then? Why didn't God just say, eat whatever you want, and don't, you can eat from that tree too? Well, here's why. God knows that human beings want to be their own authority. We don't want any authority outside of us over us. Isn't that right? That's not only true back here. That's true in here, right? We don't want anybody telling us what to do. Right? Don't tell me what to do. We want no authority over us. That means we get to make decisions. But that's the only way that we can really love so God makes us with the ability to love him, with the ability to choose to follow him, but that also means in making us that way, we have the ability to choose to not love him, to choose life apart from the way he designed it. That's kind of what it means that God made us like that. It's the knowledge of good and evil, and we can choose to love God, or we can choose to love something else. We can choose to follow God or follow something else. Well, when Adam and Eve choose to follow their own insides rather than what God said, the train is off the tracks. It's now running through the field. There's death and destruction. Everything's a mess. It's falling apart. That's the picture. I find it ironic. No human being that I know wants an outside authority sitting over them telling them what to do. And yet, if you have a conversation with any human being and ask them this question, um, so you don't want any authority? No, no, I want to be able to make my own decisions, do my own thing, follow my heart, follow my dream. Okay, great. Do you think that some things in the world are wrong? Do you think some people do some bad things they shouldn't do? You know, there are school shootings, there's child abuse, there's pedophilia. There's Oh, yeah, some of that's wrong. Oh, okay. You want other people to live with an outside authority over them, but you don't. So there must be an outside authority. See, 
kind of ironic, isn't it? What does God say? I built this world. There is a right and a wrong. And if you choose to follow me and live in light of what I say and keep me in the center, life will work. But if you choose to live away from my wisdom, following your heart rather than my will, life isn't going to work. You're going to be like a train running through the field. Destruction and death in its wake. That's the primary problem. That's the problem underneath all of our other problems. We want to be our own God, make our own decisions, and we don't do life the way God says. We do it the way we say. That is the problem under all of the other problems. But who is God? He's a loving, gracious God who made all this stuff, wants human beings to live in light of that, experiencing pleasure and fullness and purpose. That's what he wants. Well, the primary problem means life's not working. So does God then just sit back and say, okay, you guys chose your own fate. You chose your own destiny. You made your bed. Lie in it tough. No, that, that's not what he does. Okay, now, turn to the end of the Bible, all the way over to the book of Revelation. We're not going to look at any of the really weird parts. Uh, it's kind of a weird part. And we're going to look at God in salvation. We've seen him in creation. So does God just stand back and say, oh, you made your bed line? No, no, no. God does something about the problem. Here's where God is. Follow me. We choose to go away from him. We live life in a different way. So now there's a gap, a chasm between us. We now bear the guilt and the shame and the sin of living life as he calls us not to live it. What does he do? He brings salvation. He reconnects us. Um, there are a number of songs in the book, not psalms, but that kind of psalm, but there are songs in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 4, we have one of those songs, and it goes, I'm not going to sing it, I'll read it to you. Here's how it goes. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. What is that song about? God's being praised and worshipped and honored because of what? Creation. Now, we just talked about that for 15 minutes. You should have that one by now, right? So God is being worshipped and praised in heaven forever for being the creator. And you want to know something? If that's all that God ever did, he would be worthy of praise and glory and honor and power because he made everything and he made human beings with the ability to experience pleasure and purpose and fullness. And all those things can be experienced as we follow God. It's all part of God should be worshipped, praised, and honored for that forever and ever and ever. That's the first song. But that's not the only song. Huh. That's the creation one. Next chapter, chapter 5, we find this song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That is a song of salvation. Now, what happens between those two songs? Well, there's a little bit of a description. You can read this, the beginning of Revelation chapter 5. 
In Revelation chapter 4, the scene is painted, the backdrop is painted. It's the throne room in heaven. And God sits on the throne, ruling all of the affairs of the universe. And then uh, that song of creation is sung by all the people around the throne. And then in chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, all of a sudden a scroll is brought forth, like a book, or but it's wrapped up back then, right? A scroll is brought, and it has seals, right? And you need certain power and authority to be able to open it. And all of a sudden, where there was once singing and joy and praise because of God the Creator, now there's tears and sadness and people are frustrated because nobody can open the scroll. Nobody has authority. Nobody has ability. Nobody has the wisdom or the power to open the scroll. Contained in the scroll is the good end of history. The purpose of God as he intended. God's original intention being brought to fruition. That's what's in the scroll. The rest of the book of Revelation explains that. So God's original intention is going to come to fruition only if the scroll gets unrolled, but nobody can open the scroll. So John, who's eyewitness to this, he starts crying. And one of these elders, the angel comes out, says, don't, don't cry, John, you wimp. He didn't say it. There is one that can open the scroll. The lion, king of the beast, right? The lion, the king, can open the scroll. That makes perfect sense, right? So can't you see John sucking back his tears and his snot? <clears throat> right, he starts looking for the lion because a lion can come and rip the seals open and usher in the fruition of God's intention. But when John turns... He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb that had been sacrificed. A lamb that was dead, but alive again. What? Well, in this crazy world of Revelation, the pictures tell us the story. The lion became the lamb. He entered the world and was actually sacrificed, killed, not to pay for his own sin, just like the lambs of the Old Testament were not sacrificed for their own sin. They were innocent. The Lamb of God, who actually is the lion, the lion becomes the lamb who comes to the earth and is sacrificed to pay for the sin and guilt of those that are guilty. The innocent pays for the guilty, but this lamb is alive again. And this lamb now walks up to the throne of heaven, takes the scroll, and starts unrolling the scroll and brings to conclusion God's original intention. That's the plan. Is God uncaring? Heck no. He became a lamb. Jesus, the lion, became a lamb to pay for our sin and guilt. Jesus took all of that upon himself. That's not uncaring. That's super loving. And on the morning of his resurrection, kind of like undercover boss. You ever watch that? I like undercover boss. I can, I can never finish an episode without crying, though. Right? I, I, always, I sit there and say, I'm not going to cry this time. Right? 
And the CEO, the boss of the company, he kind of puts on a disguise, puts on a uniform, and he goes or she goes and tries to do the work of the employees, screws up all the time, can't do it. Here's their stories, and at the end kind of reveals who she is, reveals who he is, and, and I cry, and they cry, and he gives them gifts. And so on resurrection morning, Jesus is kind of undercover boss, right? You thought I was just a teacher. I am a teacher, but I'm the lion. I am a healer, but I'm the king. I am the lamb, but I am the lion, and I bring to fruition God's original intention. So what's God like? In creation, he's powerful and loving and gracious. And in salvation, he's forgiving and merciful and gracious to us forever. So what are the results? I'll just mention two. Here's one. Jesus removes the distance. Remember how I started a long time ago now? If this is where God is, and God says, allow me to call the shots. Since I made all this stuff and I made you, I know how you should live. I designed this whole deal. Just trust me over your life rather than trusting yourself. Follow me. But we, like they, turn our backs. We don't, we don't fall. We jump. We go from that toward idiocy, moving away from wisdom toward idiocy, and the train's off the track running through the field. What does that loving God do? He closes the distance by coming after us. He doesn't stand back there and say, well, eventually you guys will wise up. When you had enough pain, come on back. We can't come back, right? The chasm can't be bridged. So Jesus becomes the bridge and he comes to us. And what's the second thing that he does? He removes all of our sin and he removes all of our guilt. The lion becomes the lamb to remove sin and guilt and to bring us back to God. So what's God like? He's powerful. He's the creator. He made us in his image. And he wants us, he designed us to experience pleasure, and he's given us pleasurable experience after pleasurable experience. And he wants us to be fulfilled and satisfied. And he's designed this world in ways to satisfy us physically as a reminder that only he can satisfy us spiritually. But we turn our backs on him and we run. But rather than write us off, and rather than say, you've made your bed, now lie in it, he chases us down. And the lion leaves his throne and becomes a lamb that's mistreated, executed, and sacrificed. Not for any sin that he committed, because he didn't commit any, but for the sin and guilt of people like us. So that the chasm can be removed and sin and guilt washed away forever. Now, I'm not sure what kind of extrapolations you're tempted to impose on God. Maybe some extrapolations from an imperfect parent. Maybe extrapolations from a nasty boss. Maybe extrapolations from a coach that you despised. Allow the Bible to do a reality check in your head and in your heart. And if we can catch a glimpse of who God is just in two places, in creation and salvation. We'll have all that we need to live life in this world as he calls us to. And we will continue what Jesus started. Let's stand and pray.
Father, we give you thanks for revealing yourself to us. You don't leave us to our own imagination to figure you out. You tell us who you are. You're God who designed us and built us and calls us to pleasure. You're God who satisfies and fulfills as we trust you to be our satisfaction. And you're a God that gives us purposeful, meaningful, significant work to do, serving and loving you and serving and loving others. And Lord, even though we jump away from you, choosing our own wisdom rather than yours, you're not content to let us go forever. You chase us down. And Jesus, you remove the chasm. You take away our sin and guilt. In response, help us to trust you and help us to follow closely. We pray in the name of Jesus, our lion and our lamb. Amen.